You're now listening to episode 121 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Costelli joined here today with Dave Van Horn, CEO and president of PPR NoCo, veteran real estate investor and author of Real Estate Note Investing. Today, we revisit investing in performing and non-performing notes, the different levels of the note investing business, and how the current economy impacts note investors, and much more. Dave, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show today. For those of you who have not listened to episode 41, uh, would you be able to give us a little bit of information on your background? Sure. Um, well, today, I, um, we manage several mortgage investment funds that are uh, nationwide, and we primarily focus on one to four family residential. And we also do some other stuff as well. We're also seed capital for hard money. And we also do some transactional funding in the commercial, like multifamily type space. So we do some stuff in those arenas as well. But my background is mostly real estate related. Uh, Years ago, I was a contractor. I've been a realtor, gosh, 33 years, something like that now. Previously owned a title company for a while. So I've done a lot of different things. I was a property manager. Uh, so a lot of different hats over the years, but today it's primarily PPR is my uh, you know I'm president and CEO, and it's it's grown quite a bit. We've just been named to the Inc. Five Thousand. Our growth over the last three years was two hundred and thirty seven percent, so high growth. Uh, we're at around twenty five employees right now. So, got it. So uh, I know PPR Note Fund. You focus on a few different things. Do you focus on uh, performing or non-performing notes at this point? Yes. No, we, we, mostly everything we purchase is in distress, non-performing. We've done over 9,000 acquisitions and dispositions of assets. And you know we're still holding some, but we're in that range. Gotcha. Would you be able to just give, uh, give our listeners just a quick overview of the difference between a performing and non-performing yeah, note? Yeah, it's pretty simple. Um, a non-performing note is one that isn't paying. And a performing note is one that's paying. But they also have, there are a lot of uh, different vocabulary as to what stage the notes are in, like they're subperforming, and you know, you'll hear scratch and dent, you'll hear all these different terms. You know, a lot of times um, the loans get reclassified too as they have you know more pay history, things like that. So it does get a little confusing, even though I joke about it. But really, the big difference between non-performing and performing is one's paying, one isn't. Uh, subperforming is usually like, oh, they're paying nine out of 12 months or 10 out of 12 months, that kind of thing. So you have some of that people where they're rolling late or they never really get caught up. They're still in arrears and they're, you know, sometimes we have people for many years that are still catching up, like type of thing. Got it. And uh, why focus on non-performing notes? What is it about non-performing notes that make it an attractive you know, investment vehicle? Uh, for, I, I guess for me in the beginning, it was, I kind of got an in, into it by accident, but it was, it was just another way to get distressed real estate related product. You know, originally I was, I used to have the We Buy Houses business, all that type of stuff. And I was always looking for distressed sellers to get a better deal. With distressed debt though, it kind of cuts to the chase. It gets to the front of the line a little bit, like it's ahead of like the sheriff's sale or whatever. 
So um, like one of the, you know, I didn't really mention my roles. My primary roles were I oversee investor relations. You know, I have a whole team that does that though. I also oversee some marketing and I oversee our REO department, just mainly because of my background. So, you know, we we deal with a lot of dispositions on the REO property, which is real estate owned, which means it's a property that went to the foreclosure sale and came back to us, just like it would go back to the bank. So if someone on this call, if somebody's listening, they go to the sheriff's sale, the attorney for the bank at the sheriff's sale would be my attorney to give people color. Like, So I don't know if I answered your question. You did ask a question back there somewhere. I forget what it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, it was just a long, you know, basically, oh, you know, why, do why, I like why focus on that? Well, from an investor standpoint, you know, we started out as investors and then it became, our business became a club. It was funny. I was telling somebody the other day, we actually had two businesses in our first office. We were a short sale company. And on the front of the sign was this name of the short sale business that's no longer with us. And the note business was this little office in the back that my partner, John, was working on these notes. We started out as investors. And then all of a sudden, that took off. And obviously, the short sale business went down the drain. And um, you know, it's just funny how that works. And then uh, it became more of a business than just an investment. And then it became... you know, Today, we're like this enduring enterprise type thing. But what attracted me, I think, at first was I liked the idea that there was something I could buy at a discount with a high yield that had collateral. And you know, I used to play around with options in the market and stuff like that, but I never really had true collateral. And um, it was just something I kept reverting back to. And I've always been a big real estate investor. I'm, actually, I'm selling a pretty good-sized portfolio right now of homes that I owned for many years. And um, I love the tax advantages and things like that. But one of the advantages of the notes is that it's still a passive income that's backed by real estate that has a high yield, those types of things. So it was just another vehicle that seemed in some ways easier to scale. And um, I guess banks kind of figured that out a long time ago because you know why does a bank own 30 million mortgages instead of 30 million properties or something like that? Yeah, you get the idea. Do you always take first lien positions on your notes or do you take second or even further? And because you mentioned wanting to have the collateral and I'm just wondering what's your experience in, in not taking a first lien position and how some of those experiences played out? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question because um, to be honest, PPR started out in a junior lien space and we were in that space for a very long time. And believe it or not, that's our greatest expertise. We have more data on that than probably any and probably any bank even, especially on the collection side of that, right? So that was where we started. And part of the reason we were in that space was the people that showed us the business for selling that product. That was one reason. But it was also that you could position yourself into a deal with a small amount of capital and you could spread your risk around. Now, it's junior liens are more touches, but there's more upside. The only thing that happened over time as we grew is we had a lot more capital under management. And you couldn't really deploy enough capital consistently into that space. So today we're, you know, it's funny that you say this. The majority of our assets are still junior liens, but the majority of our capital is in senior liens, if that makes sense. Because a senior lien is so much more expensive than what we acquire junior liens for. Now we do have, we tend to make higher returns, but it's more work. And then there's more fallout too from the junior lien space. Whereas first liens, um, you know, you're exiting through the property in most cases, whereas junior liens, you're exiting through the borrower through some type of a modification or something like that. So, you know, out of a hundred quality junior liens, that that by that I mean they're current on the first mortgage, 
typically will have favorable outcome out of like 42 out of 100. That's just, you know, rough numbers. Whereas, and the, the other issue is I don't know which 42 they are till we get into it. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like a, you know, it's like insurance policy. We, we know out of 100 men by age 65, 36 are dead. We just don't know which 36. That's the junior lean space. In the first lean world, now it's more sticks, bricks, geography. Um, it's less statistical. Now it's more about fair market value and things like that. They're actually both product lines are, are sold differently. You know, once junior liens are sold by UPB, the first mortgages are sold by fair market value, things like that. Like their first liens are sold more on equity. So unless it's a high equity junior lien, it's not going to be looked at similar to a senior lien. They're actually sold differently. The philosophy is different. The exits are different. The strategies are different. So it's yeah, just so a different class. Yeah. So, so you mentioned on the junior liens that you typically have a lot more work involved. Can you kind of go into the, what that means? Yeah. So I'll give you a good color on that if I can. Um, if we bought three to four million in junior liens, it might be seven or eight hundred assets that would require a couple of asset managers who can handle a couple hundred assets each. If you bought we we had a trade of like 25 million first mortgages. Um, and that was like 145 assets and one asset manager can handle an easy three, four hundred first liens. So that means one person can manage up to close to a hundred million in you know surveilling first mortgages, whereas one person can only handle a couple million of seconds, if that gives you like the scale of it. Yeah. And that's just because the first lien mortgages, are they more likely to Well, pay? there's fewer of them. Um, they have more collateral. Yes. They're more likely to have, um, how do I say it? Uh, Better credit. The outcomes are more predictable. Okay. Is really what I'm getting at. Whereas the junior liens, you have to touch a lot more assets. There's a lot more of them, that type of thing to filter through to find the good assets, basically. It's probably three times the work. Interesting. Wow. Okay. So I'd asked you this before and you gave me a really interesting answer. You know, if you had to start all over, would you start a note investing business again? Gosh, I forget what I told you last time. Um, <laughs> it changes what day of the week it is or what time <laughs> of day it is. Um, would I start another? You know, that's a good question. There's a, probably a strong probability I wouldn't. And it would be due to the level of compliance and regulation. Um, our business has morphed dramatically. Like we started, you know, in an up market before the crash, then the crash came, then Dodd-Frank came. Uh, today, it's very heavily regulated. And even our business today is morphing and evolving as we've grown. We're becoming, you know, strategically becoming less of an asset manager. Like we've been an asset manager for years. Uh, we do a lot more surveillance today, which is overseeing other asset managers and JV partners we have. Today, we're more on the capital management side than we are on the asset management side. And we're, we're morphing into more of... Uh, like right now, we're trying to become an RIA, a registered investment advisor. And we're kind of morphing into being more of a fund of funds. Mm. That so, is what you told me. And it's due to the regulations and the cumbersome you know, stuff. Yeah. Yeah, you, you did give me the that, that same answer uh, when I asked yeah. you previously. So good job. Yeah. Uh, so so <laughs> so if, if somebody's looking at this and like, yeah, I don't want to go start a big note investing business because of all the reasons you just gave, what are their options to invest in notes? Well, the other piece is there's different levels of note business, right? It's different, like because I'm also Dave, the note investor. 
where I invest in you know some seller finance notes. Like right now, I'm selling 14 properties and I'm holding a second. I'm holding actually, I'm holding a first mortgage for 450 something thousand as part of this one point uh, what is it 1.3 million dollar deal. I'm holding a bunch of paper on the deal, and so there's all different ways. That's the note business too, right? And I've done that when you know many times I sold a property and held a second, or many times I purchased a property and had some kind of owner financing. So there's a whole different levels of how you can incorporate the note business into your investing or into your uh, you know your strategy. And then also have a portfolio of notes that are just performing. Mostly what I invest in personally are performing loans. I also invest in some merchant cash stuff. I, so I invest in different types of loans. I've even done some lending club nonsense just playing around. That, you know, it's like my Facebook. And then there's times when... Um, so there's different levels of it. But when you mentioned it, like, would you start a, you know, a big note company again? The challenge is you have, there's a lot of compliance. And I'm not saying compliance isn't justified. It is when you hit a certain level of scale. But we're also, we've also realized what we're good at. We're really good at raising capital more so than we are at you know, the execution or running a trade desk. You know, we can outsource certain pieces. It's funny what you, you know, when you start out in the beginning, what you insource and outsource. And then as you evolve, how that morphs and changes. And today we outsource completely different stuff than we did in the beginning and vice versa. We bring stuff in-house that we didn't have in-house before. So there's, you know, it would be just like a a guy that does We Buy Houses. He gets up to a thousand houses and he goes, oh, you know, I'm going to be a property manager now. Well, it's the same idea. He decides to bring it in-house or he decides to own his own real estate office or title company. So it's funny how that evolves. But you're right. Would I have done it differently? yeah, I would have started out as a fund of funds and just raised capital because that's what I'm really good at. And I, you know, it's just sometimes we don't know ourselves or our strengths well enough, or the one thing that really catapults us, and it takes us a little while to figure that out. I wish I knew that when I was 29, <laughs> but I had to fumble and bumble along the way to figure out what works for me. Now, what works for me might not work, you know, you or, or you know, everybody's different. But it's really trying to get in, hone in on what that is for whoever. And then how do I best scale that or duplicate that? Or yeah, so for me, it would be probably the the capital management side right out of the gate would have been probably a neat way to go. I it's interesting thought to what would that have looked like if I had that's all he had done. Cause you know how sometimes you're we were focusing in in a couple different areas. Whereas if we had focused on the one thing that was really the best thing, what would be different today? That's a great question, right? That's a great answer. And what I kind of heard in there as like in terms of the note business, there's like you said, there's different levels to the note business, right? You have like the individual like level of note investing where maybe you're carrying back some notes, uh, carrying back as like seller financing on some properties you may sell. That's one way to be involved with the note business. And then there's also you could just buy performing notes or invest in rather performing notes. Then there's another level which is in being in the business of note investing yeah. where you grew into, it sounded like. Um, and then even when you get into the business of note investing, there's different levels to that. Um, to your point, there's the asset management side of it where it sounds like you're more on the execution side uh, and there's more compliance there. And then there's just the, I'm going to go raise a, a bunch of money and then go invest in notes that other people are managing. Is that, did I kind of get that? Well, yeah, it's like, it's like any business, like you could be a servicer, just service notes, right? Which is really like property management for notes, right? So it's like, uh, 
do you want to work on the capital side? Do you want to work on the management side? Do you want to work on the acquisition side? Like there's multiple categories that you could do, but you're, you're hitting around it. Part of it is it's a big difference between being an investor. And then like, if I invest in a note fund, it's like watching paint dry. I don't do anything. It's mailbox money. I just sit back and collect checks. If I, you know, own that company and I have 25 employees, well, that's a different animal. And, you know, like we have a JV partner on the West Coast that we, you know, it's like an affiliate of ours. We work together. You know, they have 80, you know, they had like 85 employees, you know. Do I want to have 85 employees? Not really. I mean, but there's nothing wrong with that. That's what they chose to do. But so it's really, do you want a big business? Do you want a smaller boutique type thing? You know, it's really what works best for you. And, and there's no right or wrong answer. It's really, you know, what fits you. I'm kind of going the other way <laughs> where, where uh, sometimes simplicity is, is better if it's well-targeted, you know? No, it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, that kind of actually brings us into another question that we had for you, which was, you know, right now we understand there's a few different funds that you have available. People could invest in at PPR, two of them being one of them is an 8% income fund. And then there's another 6% liquidity fund. Um, I kind of just wanted to get an idea of what are the difference between the two and like what are the different risk levels in the two yeah, funds? Yeah, sure. Um, well, the liquidity fund is just like it sounds. It's more liquid than the other fund. And um, you know, we kind of fit in this, um, I don't want to say middle ground, but you know how there's, you know, there's short-term investments like hard money or a hard money fund where it's only like a six-month term, that type of thing, or a one-year term. Then you have other investments that are midterm. We're kind of in the middle where we fall from six months to three years for most of our investments. Uh, and then you have longer term investments like syndications, because I do a lot of syndication stuff with apartments and things like that, where they tend to be three, five, and 10 years in length sometimes, especially, you know, you could have new development as well. So, so you have short term, midterm, long term, and then you'll have tax advantage, not as tax advantage. So, different investors, you know, I work with a lot of high net worth investors. They have different needs. Some are looking for the capital gains versus some on cash flow. So it's, and then some want to mix, right? And some need more tax advantages and some need less. And they have different types of money, right? They have money that's sitting in qualified plans. They'd like to park somewhere. And then they have money that's regular money uh, that they're more concerned maybe with taxes and things like that. So I do the same thing personally. I have different buckets of capital. I have all different investments and I try to earmark the capital to the investment or the rate on that capital to the investment. We do the same thing at PPR as well. So we have cheaper capital. But back to your question about the liquidity fund, that fund is backed primarily by reperforming loans, right? So we can sell a reperforming loan literally in 15 minutes, or we can package it up in bulk and sell it in a couple of days. And our liquidity is usually a 60 day. 60 day or 90 day type of liquidity after maturity, right? So, because people go, how can you be that liquid and the Vanguard isn't or whatever, the bank isn't? And that's how, because the assets are, are very liquid assets. Whereas real estate, I can't sell, usually you can't sell, you can sell a house on eBay these days, but I don't know if you can sell it in 15 minutes and feel comfortable doing that on a regular basis. So, and then in our income fund, that's mostly all non performing loans, primarily firsts. And then they have different returns and different margins in those funds, right? So they pay a higher yield, but they have a higher rate of margin. And where like the liquidity fund, typically, you know, our coupon on most of those reperforming loans is probably north of 12. Whereas you can see we're paying an average cost of capital of around 
five or six. And then same way in the uh, income fund, typically it's you know 18 to 20% range, sometimes 22% on first mortgages. Whereas junior liens, we also buy some of those. We just can't get enough of those. The returns can actually be much higher. It's just not on the entire portfolio though. But so it's because people are like, well, how can you pay an eight or a 10? And it's because you're obviously, you're making more on those assets than that, right? Got it. Think I might have heard in there and might have misheard, but if if you say you invest in a six percent liquidity fund, right? You could, as an investor, is say you put fifty grand in, let's say, and it would take you sixty days to get it out if you need. No, to. What, no. What I meant is, uh, it's a six month time period, but after that, it goes on a, a rolling call option. Got it. Got it. So it, it sounds like that might be an option. You, as from an investor's perspective. Uh, you take a little bit of a lesser return on that capital, but you have the option to be able to take that out should you need to. It's dry powder money. You know, there's nothing wrong. You know, I'm not, you know, I don't suggest to anyone. In fact, that's one of the things we do. We'll interview an investor, one, to make sure it's a good fit for them, right? And we we actually cap investors in both our funds at a million dollars. And now you might say, well, that sounds like a lot. But to some people, that isn't a lot. And the reason we do that is, you know, like we don't want any family offices, coming in and trying to dominate a fund or anything. And then we also don't want the opposite. We really don't want people to have too much exposure. They really should go look at other investments sometimes. It's kind of like you're protecting them from themselves a little bit. Although they could have multiple entities, I guess, and invest. But we do cap investors at a million. We also allow them to compound. And another thing is we have a higher rate fund that opens occasionally, a 10% fund. And to get first access to that, it's like a capital call list, basically. You have to be a regular fund investor already. So they get preferred access. And a lot of times our acquisitions fill up with us just notifying the current investors. Hey, our 10% fund's open if you want to get into that. But if you're not in that fund, in one of the two funds, you wouldn't know about it. Makes sense. And do you see... Uh, I mean, I know you said you deal with high net worth individuals. So you may, you may or may not see this, I guess. But this question I'm going to ask is... Do you see a lot of people investing this through like 401ks and IRAs? Yeah. Or- a large percentage of uh, qualified plans, everything, HSAs, simple SEPs, you name it, self-directed 401s, all kinds of stuff. We work with about 35 to 40 companies, believe it or not, throughout the US. Of course, they all have different paperwork. <laughs> but um, we have a, like a whole team. That's That's what they work on. That makes sense. As I guess if we, we just shifted gears just a little bit, right now we have the entire forbearance and mortgage delinquencies and uh, eviction manatorium kind moratoriums? of... Moratorium? Moratorium. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's no, exactly no, what I meant to say. It's happening. It's, it's real. I guess, you know, the question is, you know, at, at this point in time, how is that affecting, you know, your business and no investors in general at this point? Um, for, for us, it, you know, it could slow down our revenue in that category, right? Um, but we still own the assets, right? So the one advantage of our business, we can kind of predict our revenue for the upcoming year because we would already own those assets. One of the things the moratorium does is obviously it slows down some of your revenue, but it doesn't necessarily go away. So it's much different than like if I owned an apartment complex and I wasn't collecting rent. Because I know I was a property manager. You missed 60 days of rent. Guess what? You're never going to see it usually. Whereas in the mortgage space, it's different. It gets added on if they miss payments. It's added on with late fees, penalties, all that stuff. So it doesn't really go away. It's just delayed. Now, does that mean I love delays? No, it's actually forced us to do some other tactics. A couple of things that come to mind is one is we're, you know, we're selling more notes than we normally do. 
So we can liquidate and get revenue from that source. And the other thing we do is we have, believe it or not, we have this uh, pretty robust Dean and Lou program right now. And why do you think that is? It circumvents the whole entire court process. So we have this whole system we're doing now where we do this type of outreach we have teed up to basically try to get you know more of a cash for keys, Dean and Lou scenario going that actually circumvents the entire court process. So there's some of the things we're doing in, in light of the environment. But what will happen is you're going to see it open back up and now it's going to be a floodgate and we'll probably be working overtime because <laughs> uh, because of that. Yeah. Do you feel that debt's a, I mean, it kind of seems like it. Do you feel like debt is a safer place to be than hard assets at this point in this environment? Wow, that's a good question. Um, you know, you know, I mentioned I'm selling a bunch of properties. The residential real estate market's been pretty robust in, in a lot of markets. I literally got two offers on a sizable portfolio that were identical, which was weird. And they were very good offers, mm. right? And it, it just made me go, you know, hey, now's a really good time to do that, to unload some of these properties because it might be another five or 10 years before I see that kind of numbers again. And it's really, it's still a seller's market in my head in the residential side. Commercial is a little bit different other than it is hard to find deals, but I don't know, you know, nobody knows how long that's going to last that party. But a lot of this is driven by this cheap capital we're seeing, right? The money's like so cheap. I can't really knock the buyer of my properties because he probably has better financing than I have on them, you know, in, in theory. So even though he might be paying me more, he's probably got such a low rate that all the properties still make sense for that person that's buying them, you know. So it's uh it's an interesting time for investors. If they can find a deal, it might still pay them to execute on it because the capital's so cheap. And we see that in even in the multifamily space, you know, people are like, oh, are we the top of the market? Is it a bubble? But the capital's so cheap, you know. Are, when are you going to see these three percent rates and stuff? Mm. It kind of makes it uh, still appealing to go into that class because people do have to live somewhere, and um, the majority of the country is working. Although our biggest economic driver for my business is unemployment. It was unprecedented levels. Now it's come back down. It'll be interesting to see where it lands. You know, once we truly do get a little more opened up, it might be in the spring or, right. you know, summer yeah. or fall of next year of 21. I mean, but, you know, we'll start to, at some point, you're going to start to come out of this. And then it's like, there's going to be fallout. Not everyone's going back to work or going back to work in the same way. So I, we, you know, unfortunately, there'll be some casualties, but that will just provide more product for our type of business. Uh, and we're already seeing it, starting to see widening of the margins right before COVID. The margins were very tight, you know, in our business. How how does inflation, all all the money easing, all the injection of money that the Fed has been performing over this past year, assuming that inflation kicks up, how does that impact your business? Because I know that on the real estate side of the coin, like owning the hard asset is a really nice hedge against inflation because I can lock in a 30 year of, you know, yeah. really cheap financing. And, and that's great from an inflationary perspective. What about on your side of the coin though? How, how does inflation factor into how you may operate over the coming years? It's a great question. I wish there was a simple answer, but there's so many other factors besides just the inflation, right? But there's so much stimulus too. We are a real estate backed asset and we're in our Note values and pricing are in direct correlation to real estate values. So when real estate values are up, note prices are up. When real estate values are down, note prices are down. Now, the question is, 
what will be all the repercussions of all the stimulus? It's hard to tell in some of this stuff, to be honest with you. I wish I had that crystal ball. Um, we do have a, actually a full-time economist on staff. And when, the farther out you go, the harder it is. It's, you know, one of the predictions is, you know, how long will, you know, this is a health crisis. So it's going to take a health solution to get us out of this. You know, a lot of our other crises that we've had were from a certain sector or the economy, that type of thing. Whereas this is a little different, right? And you're kind of saying it, people aren't really feeling quite comfortable enough until the vaccine finally hits or there's, sure, we have better treatments today and stuff. And as that evolves, things will pick up better and better and better and better. But you also have um, the feds, you know, look at all the debt the government's taken on and, you know, all the stimulus, what impacts that going to have. You know, it's going to be interesting to see these local states and cities and municipalities. They have to have these shortfalls of revenue, right? Because there wasn't as much activity. You know, they're all going to be hurting for money. And, you know, everybody's going to have their hand out for more money. So it's going to be it's going to be dog eat dog out there. Are they going to raise our taxes and things like that? You know, eventually, are you going to see some kind of inflation coming from that? Because I know when I go out to eat, it costs me more money for that, right? And the experience is a little different too. <laughs> but, but, you know, so, um, and then you have other areas. How are they going to be impacted? Like just the whole education system, right? Even my office space, we, you know, we realized we don't need our office. You know, my rent is pretty significant here. You know, it's over a hundred grand a year. And, and you find out you don't need it. Now we still, we're going to do other things. Are we going to renew our long-term lease again? I don't know. Yeah, we're definitely not going to take on more space because we realize we absolutely don't, no matter how big we get, we don't really need any more space, right? So I'm not the only person in that camp. So I think the commercial side is going to definitely take, take some kind of a hit. A lot of it will depend on how long the moratoriums last. Now, my state, I'm in Pennsylvania, they just extended to November 4th now, right? So it was ending at September 30th, right? So you're seeing... You know, and you're seeing some of the uh, government agencies extending it to the end of the year. Now, how much longer will it go past that? At some point, you know, they'll start to get back to where the moratoriums are up or... And then you're seeing it with the stimulus now, right? We know from a practical standpoint, I mean, you guys are accountants, right? You got to know we need more stimulus to get this thing going. And you can see the fight that they're reluctant to do it. And I think it's going to cause some da serious damage if they don't put in some more stimulus till we get back. Now, then you always have to pay the piper. It's a little bit of kicking the can down the road, right? But uh, so it'll be interesting to see. I, I really don't know. You know, it's inflation, deflation, stagflation. It'll be interesting to see which one we're most afraid of and what's most likely going to happen. Our rates can't go much lower, right? <laughs> we'll be negative territory. And I think they're trying to avoid that. So it'll be interesting to see. And we have an election, which is probably the, the 800-pound gorilla in the room where we don't know which way is going to go. What are the taxes, tax treatments going to be? What's going to happen to capital gains after that? You know, that's going to impact my investors, everybody. I'm sure you're seeing it as well. It flips everybody's strategies around. But that's what keeps you guys in business, right? You guys should be excited. For sure. For sure. <laughs> You know, as you were talking there, what I kind of heard is like basically that right now is a really good time to sell residential property because you're not sure if you're going to see the type of prices at the type of heights that we're seeing today you know, in the residential market. Meanwhile, commercial properties are at some point in the future probably going to take a dive. I mean, you're 
you're saying, and I know you're not the only one who's seeing this, you're saying like, basically, you don't know if you're going to renew the office space again. So that kind of leads. Office and retail is going to be a tough scenario in most cases. You know, you got a lot of office space to repurpose, right? I think the residential, you know, the multifamily might hold on because you have a lot of, you know, it's affordable housing, right? Everybody needs a place to live. You have a lot of boomers. There's still a lack of new construction. You know, I was in new construction for 22 years. And right now, new construction still not back to where it was before the crash, the actual number of units being produced. And another, another thing that I think people are losing sight of is you have a lot of family formation going on. Well, there's nowhere for all them all to go, right? So you have a lot of interesting things happening. That's why you also have, what is it? Somebody's I was hearing was 10,000 baby boomers are retiring like every day for the next 20 years. <laughs> Yo, maybe we should be getting into the senior living space, Brandon. I don't know. So you, you know, uh, we joke about it, but it's really not a joke, right? It's uh, where's the demographics moving? And they have, believe it or not, they have a lot of the wealth. Now, it's easy for me to say that because I'm a boomer, but I'm on the edge. I'm just barely. But you get the idea. Um, it, it does make you think about where am I positioning my stuff uh, based on what's going on out there. You know, you're seeing a setback in some areas and then other areas will, will probably be insulated from it. But I think the situation has made all of us rethink how we're doing things and making us like we're doing the same thing. We're looking at how do we position ourselves so we have more revenue cycle or we're more insulated if there were another type of COVID scenario. You know, it's just making everyone smarter in some ways of you know what to do next as a result of what's you know happened. That makes a lot of sense. Definitely a lot of things up in the air um, right now for sure. Um, if our listeners wanted to learn, you know, more about you, what you have going on, how they might be able to invest in PPR note fund, all of that good stuff, what would be the best way for them to do so? Uh, well, the easiest thing is just go to pprnoteco.com website, or you can go to noco.com forward slash welcome. We do have like a free ebook on, you know, introduction to note investing. Somebody wanted to dig a little deeper into it. You know, it's just on our, on our regular website. And then we, we also, you know, sell notes. If people want to sign up for our weekly newsletter, we plan to start to sell more REO property now. So uh, in the beginning of the year, so we're hoping to do more of that as well. Whereas people can buy, you know, either at a pre-foreclosure, we're actually going to be selling some pre-foreclosure stuff. So it'll be interesting. You know, we keep growing. We have more stuff for, uh, for the audience, so to speak. So some people will sign up for an email newsletter. They can get notified anytime we're selling something. Uh, or about our fund. They want to do something passive, you know? Absolutely. So we'll go ahead and drop all that stuff into the show notes below for everybody who's listening. If you want to go check that out, Dave, want to thank you for coming on the show today. We learned a lot about the note business where we currently stand, kind of what's still up in the air. Um, very insightful and appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. 
to become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.